I invite you to turn in your uh, Bibles now to Philippians chapter 2, and that's page 1827. Page 1827 in your pew Bibles. We are in the midst of a series on the Christian virtues. And uh, in a large way, our text um, comes from Colossians chapter 3. And we've been looking at that. And uh, where we hear God's word to clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness. And today we look at the topic of humility. And so we're looking at humility as it comes to us in Philippians chapter 2. This is a portrait uh, of God's people in Philippi and Paul calling them to remember the humility of Jesus Christ. And this is a, a text we've looked at before, but it's not the kind of text you ever look at and say, well, we've got that one down, we know everything about it. Um, this was uh, part of this text actually is believed to be an early Christian hymn. And so it was repeated by the, uh, the early church so often that we actually have it included in our Bibles. So let's look at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then... Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, in a biography of President Lyndon Johnson, it was pointed out that at dinner parties, as long as the topic of conversation revolved around him, he apparently was lively, animated, he loved to talk. But if somebody were to change the subject, he would pretend to go to sleep. And he would not wake up again until the conversation came back to him. Now, that may be a little extreme, but actually it's a good illustration of pride. Because pride loves to be the center of attention. In fact, pride has to be the center of attention. Pride is an unrealistic self-appraisal. 
It's an inflated ego. And an inflated ego is a fragile ego. So fragile that it needs constant affirmation. And without that affirmation, pride is easily offended. It's insulted and it's hurt. And it wonders why no one is paying adequate attention to me. And that's because in the proudful mind, I stand out. I stand above the crowd and above the commoners around me. And this is why we speak of pride often through images of height, right? We say things like, she's on her high horse, or he's looking down his nose, or she thinks too highly of herself. All images of height. The opposite of pride is the Christian virtue of humility. It's often pointed out that, that our English word humility has its origins in the Latin word hummus. And hummus simply means earth, dirt. And so humility is not about looking down on others as much as it is getting down, getting down to earth getting down to the same level as everybody else. A humble person, for instance, has two feet on the ground. She's level-headed. She's not prone to fantasize about the great things that she has done or is about to do. Rather, she's down to earth. And from that position, the humble person is able to see more accurately. I think that that word hummus today is a good place for us to begin. Because I would have thought that if pride actually meant looking down at everyone else, I would have thought that humility means to look up at everyone else. I would have thought that humility means to be in a position where we stand beneath the world, where we stand beneath the general population, and we look up at everyone. But that's not humility. Not at all. Humility does not stand beneath others. Humility does not grovel before others. That's humiliation. And humiliation is actually the counterfeit of humility. It's not humility itself. Like I said, humility is having two feet on the ground, which is exactly where everyone else stands, right? On the ground. And true humility understands that. That this is something common to all of us. And yet, you might argue that, yes, but we are broken sinners, right? And therefore, we are ruined in every way, and therefore our sin perhaps has put us in that position of groveling. Our sin has humiliated us. And, and here I'm going to repeat some of the thoughts and, and comments of one of my former teachers, Neil Planinga, who reminds us that while we are ruined in so many ways, and yes, that is very true, at the same time we are what he calls nobility in ruins. Nobility in ruins. 
Remember whose image it is that we bear. We bear the image of God himself. And remember the words of Psalm 8. We were created a little lower than the heavenly beings, a little lower than the angels, and we were crowned with glory and honor. And you may not spit on someone who is wearing a crown, says Plantinga. Jesus took on humiliation, yes. But he took it on because he was going to the cross. And it was our humiliation that he took on himself, wasn't it? The humiliation that came along with our sin, with my sin and with your sin. We can't miss what Paul says in verse 8 of our text, and that is that Jesus was obedient to death. Obedient to death. In other words, death was not an accident. It just didn't come upon him. Death was planned. It was God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus carry our shame. Jesus took on the form of a servant, yes. But again, we have to be very careful here. It's not as if Jesus was putting on a disguise. That's not what this text is saying. Rather, this text is telling us that Jesus, in his very nature, is a servant. This is who he is. And it's because he was a servant that he did what he did. God was always serving people who did not deserve it. Right? That's what we talked about last week when we talked about the fact that God is kind to both the evil and the good alike. He is kind and merciful to people who do not deserve it. He serves people who do not deserve it. And this is why Jesus is a servant. This is who he is. Jesus was a servant, yes, That's not the same thing as being a doormat. Jesus was not a doormat. Jesus did not do everything that people wanted him to do, did he? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus didn't do it. Teacher, give us a sign. People were always saying. Jesus didn't do it. If you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Jesus didn't do it. Jesus was a servant on his terms. And his terms were God's terms. Jesus was obedient to death. Jesus took our shame upon himself to save us. And therefore, friends, it does not follow, says Planninga, that those who cannot save the world, like Jesus saved the world, it does not follow that those of us who cannot save the world are called to endure humiliation from anyone who wants to visit it upon us. Did you hear that? It does not follow for those of us who cannot save the world that we are called to endure the humiliation that's forced upon us by anyone who wants to do that. Friends, history is full of examples 
of people who have called others to humble themselves in the name of Jesus. White people have preached this to non-white people. Men have preached this to women. Strong people have preached it to weak people. You must humble yourselves. And by that they meant humiliate yourselves. The Pharisees did this. The Pharisees were very good at preaching humility, but they were always preaching it to other people. And that's why Jesus went after them so hard. And he did go after them hard. Friends, humility is not the same as humiliation. And we have to learn to distinguish those two. If what you are preaching is humiliation, you have to stop. And if what you are clothing yourself with is humiliation, you too have to stop. We do not help people by simply reinforcing their arrogance. What some of us need to put on, friends, what some of us need to clothe ourselves with is not submission, but resistance. For example, if a wife is beaten by her husband, and the next day he's full of regret, and he comes to her and he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But then next week it happens again, and again he comes full of regret, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But then next month it happens again, and he's sorry again, and sorry, he's sorry, he's sorry. Friends, in that case, she is not called to submit. We are not called to submit to evil. We are called to resist evil. And friends, it is evil to treat someone who bears the image of God as someone who is created a little lower than the animals and not the angels. Friends, humility is not about looking up at everyone else. It's not about groveling. It's not about cowering in the corner. It's about looking at everyone else. It's seeing a level playing field. And when the field is level, and when we have both feet planted solidly on the ground, then we begin to see more accurately. And this is the perspective of humility. This is true humility. True humility is seeing God more accurately, right? As far superior to us in every way. And humility is, is looking at others and seeing them more accurately, seeing them as on the same plane as I am, seeing other people as my peers, as my friends, as my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And humility also sees myself more accurately, not as superior to the people around me, also not inferior to the people around me, but seeing accurately and an accurate understanding of ourselves is that we are loved and we are valued. We are loved by God 
and we are loved by the people around us. For that is what life in the kingdom of God is like. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Robert Roberts points out that this is how life begins, at least for many of us. That's how life begins. Mom and dad look at us and they say, Nathan, I love you. And it's not because mom always wanted a boy and Nathan's a boy. And it's not because Nathan just picked up his toys or it's not because Nathan just beat out all the other three-year-olds at a coloring contest. She loves him just because he's Nathan. And she says it just out of the blue. It comes unprompted and unconditional as an affirmation of his value. And that's how life starts for many of us, with that affirmation of our value. But you know it, friends. It doesn't start that way for all of us, does it? The reality is we experience the kingdom of God in varying and differing amounts. And even in the best of circumstances, it doesn't take long for sin to to warp things or to sort of clog love's channel as it tries to get to us. We all know that mom doesn't look at every child and say, Nathan, I love you, but sometimes that love is withheld because Nathan colored outside the lines or because Nathan was naughty or he finished middle of the pack in the race. Parents may not intend to, but sometimes we do. We just communicate that we are loved or we love our children for what they achieve or for how they look or for how they behave. As I said, they may not intend to, but it happens. And then begins our striving, doesn't it? Our striving to regain our rightful dignity. And how do we do that? Or we do it by comparing ourselves to others. We think of myself, well, I may be ugly, but at least I'm not as ugly as that guy I see at the Y every Monday morning. And this is how we lift ourselves up. And this is how we we strive to regain our God-given dignity, but, but we do it by lifting ourselves above others or by pushing others just a little further down. And as we do that, we begin to isolate ourselves from the people around us. And what comes from that is, is we fall out of community and we fall out of fellowship because you can only be in fellowship with people who are actually your fellows with people who are your peers, with people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. If no one is our fellow, we cannot have community. Have you ever been in that position where you heard yourself say, "Um, I'm not going to join a life group. Life groups are worthless. Life groups are small groups um, around here for getting together with brothers and sisters and Anyway, have you ever heard that? You ever heard those words from yourself? I'm not going to do that. That's worthless. I don't want to be in one of those groups. There's no one like me there. 
no one like me there. There's no one I can relate to. It could be the reason that everyone is so different is you. Perhaps there's no fellowship in your group and there's no, there's no meaningful times of prayer and there's no spiritual growth really diving into the Scripture and saying, I'm, I'm learning so much from this. Maybe none of that's happening because you've lifted yourself to a height where you have no peers to do those things with. This is why Paul says in our text, if you want to experience true fellowship in the church, if you want to experience a true oneness with your fellow believers, then put on humility. Take off selfish ambition. Take off vain conceit. Take off that distorted self-image. Take off pride. Again, it's Plantinga who says, the proud person is the conceited person. And so she thinks a lot of herself. Or she thinks of herself as a narcissistic person. She thinks of herself a lot. Isn't that true? We think a lot of ourselves... And we think of ourselves a lot. And we have no peers and no fellowship as a result. Friends, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's not humiliation. It's thinking of yourself less. As in less often. And how do we get to that point? How do we get to that place where where we think of ourselves less? How do we get to that place where we're not constantly comparing ourselves to the people around us, not continually wondering, what is it other people are thinking of me? Not always trying to get other people to acknowledge me, to like me, to love me. How do we get to that place? Well, the answer, friends, is only through the gospel. Because the gospel speaks to our heads and it speaks even more to our hearts that we are loved. That we don't have to lift ourselves up. Because God already did in Jesus Christ. You know, so much of life is is like a trial. And we are always the accused And therefore, we're being judged, right, by everyone around us. We're being judged by God. We're being judged by our friends, judged by our neighbors, and we're being judged by ourselves. And the question is always, are you good enough? Are you good enough? And it feels like all the eyes are always on me. Always on me. But the gospel tells us that Jesus... In all of his glory, Jesus humbled himself and he became a servant. He became human. And he served us all the way to the cross. He humbled himself to equality with even the lowest human being. And then once 
We were at a peer level. He showed us our true worth by dying for us. By dying for us. And so what that means is that if he died in my place, if he bore my humiliation on the cross, my shame, then what that means is the trial's over. And the verdict is in, right? And I've been judged innocent. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The trial is over. And so I can take my eyes off of myself and I can put my eyes on God where they belong. And I can look at others around me and I can see them more honestly. And I can see where they hurt. And I can see where I've hurt them. And I can begin to love like I'm supposed to love. But the gospel doesn't end there, does it? That's not where Philippians 2 ends. In fact, where it ends is that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. And that's part of the gospel as well. Friends, the gospel begins with humility, doesn't it? You and I are not saved by pointing out our goodness to God, but rather by admitting our lack of it. That's how we are saved. But once we are able to do that, then, then by God's grace, He lifts up the humble, as He says He will throughout Scripture from beginning to end. I am a God who lifts up the humble. And that's what God does with us in Jesus Christ. He stands us up with our feet back on the ground, solidly on the ground, so we can get an accurate look at life around us again. And we can see God in all of his holiness, and we can see others as valuable as we are, and no less. And we can see ourselves more accurately. And the glory that God has placed upon us in Jesus Christ and we can look at ourselves more honestly, right? And especially when we see our sin, we can grieve over it rather than try to hide it or put it in a closet or pretend it doesn't exist. But we can grieve over it. Neil, Neil Plantinga concludes a, a presentation on humility with this story. I'll conclude with this today. Neil's wife, Kathleen, was a Christian school teacher for 25 years. She once had a student named Ken, at least that's what we'll call him. And Ken had trouble with school because he was extremely high-strung. He was hot-wired, he was hyperactive, he couldn't sit still. He couldn't listen very well. He couldn't speak quietly. He was smart. And Ken loved God. And he loved God every day. At the same time, he couldn't listen very well in class because there was a storm in his soul that was drowning everything else out. And so Kathleen rigged up a little system with Ken a signal system. To interrupt that storm in his soul from time to time, what she would do is she would give him a signal and Ken would leave the room and 
she had a, a course marked out for him around the elementary school, and he was to walk that course three times, and then he could come back into the room, and he would sit down again, and things would be fine once more, at least for a while. Well, one day, Ken was really, really agitated and getting more and more wound up, and so Kathleen signaled for him um, to do his thing. And he got up and he went outside the room. And by the way, the drill was supposed to work this way. He would, he would do one loop and then he would come back to her door and he would, he would give her the signal one. And then he would do another loop and he would come back to the door and signal her two. One more, signal her three. And then he would come back into the room and sit down. Well, on this particular day, he, or Kathleen sent her out and he did his first loop. He did the one then she saw him at the door, he did the two, and then the three, and she invited him back in. So, it was just before noon on that particular day, just before noon recess. She was back in her room, and a fellow teacher came in, and she said, Kathleen, I saw something kind of weird going on this morning. She said, I saw Ken leave your room. And then he sat down in the hall. <clears throat> and then a little while later, he went over to your door and he put up one finger. And then he went back and he sat down in the hall again. And a little while later, he got up and he went to your door and he gave you two fingers. And then he sat down again. A little while later, he indicated three fingers and then he went back in your room. She said, what's all that about? So... Kathleen, after lunch, when Ken came back into the room, she said, she said, Ken, Miss So-and-so told me what she saw in the hall, and here's what she saw. And Ken hung his head. And she said, Ken, that wasn't honest. Our deal is that, that you signal me when you've really done a loop, and you didn't do your loops, you just gave me the signal as if you had. And that's not honest, Ken, and I, I think we've got to, to think this over. So why don't you go home tonight and you think it over and we'll talk about it some more tomorrow. So school was dismissed. Pretty soon, Kathleen was getting her stuff together, getting ready to leave, and another teacher came into her room. And she said, I just ran into Ken, the back of the school, and he was crying his heart out. And I said to him, Ken, what's wrong? What's the matter? And he said to me with a tone of voice that I cannot entirely reproduce, but which I will never forget as long as I live. He cried out, I'm dishonest. I'm dishonest. And she put her arm around Ken. And she told him that he was a child of God. And he was saved <clears throat> by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that any dishonesty that he had in him was forgiven and he had to go home in peace. 
And Plantinga summarizes that incident this way. He says, I think there was some dying and rising going on behind that school that day. I think there was Good Friday and Easter going on behind the school that day. I think the teacher who heard Ken say, I'm dishonest, and told him that he was a child of God, I think that teacher was a minister of grace. And that she understood that since we have been raised with Christ as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we are all to clothe ourselves with humility because humility fits people who have been raised with Jesus Christ. My friends, you too have been raised with Jesus Christ. And so clothe yourselves with Christ. And clothe yourselves with humility. Because it fits. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are all children of God, and you are the minister of grace to us. We have died with Christ, and again, we have been raised with you in your resurrection, and this is our prayer this morning. And friends, we're going to continue this prayer as we have the last couple of weeks, and in a moment... There will be some texts on the screen behind me. And I invite you to pray those texts and to confess and to commit yourselves to humility once again. And then we'll conclude as we have by singing together. Take, oh, take me as I am. Take, oh, take me 
Oh.